Good morning. My name is David White. I get to be the associate pastor here at Springton Lake Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love an opportunity to get to meet you after the service. We have been preaching through 2 Timothy this fall. We've got today and next week, and then we'll be finished the book. Uh, Today's passage is 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 15. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that is on page 996. So this group of teenagers here, uh, they met when they were in high school together, and they decided to form a band. They tried a couple different names out and finally landed on, can anybody guess it? You two. So U2 has been together now since 1976. That's like an eternity in the pop music world, 47 years. Bono said this recently, the hardest thing to do is to stick together. Mates, family, marriage, business, band, It's like resisting gravity. Sticking together is like resisting gravity. But the alternative is too predictable. You rid the room of argument. You empty your life of the people you need the most. We need each other, and we need to stick together. The easy thing to do is to just cut off relationship because Relationships are difficult. Can I get an amen this morning? If you're, if you're with us and, and you're exploring the Christian faith, we're really glad you've come out this morning. Uh, and, and we need to be honest. Number one, there's conflict all around, and, and Bob alluded to that in his prayer a moment ago. Um, and Christians aren't great. We are not relationally where we should be because all of us are in process. But the reality is Jesus taught us how to live. He showed us how to live well with one another, to love our enemies, to forgive each other 70 times 7 and and all the rest. Um, So I would urge you, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, to look to him and his teaching, and we're going to see how that was lived out in the life of Paul. So please read with me 2 Timothy, this is chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be looking at four points this morning. I've got a simple outline for you in the bulletin. First of all, we're going to consider Paul's humanity that we see in this passage. Then we're going to look at the friends he lists, the enemies he lists, and finally, the hope of reconciliation. 
Let me just throw this up as, as some of these, these places are mentioned so that you have a little geographical context for the passage. Paul is in Rome. That's easy to find. Everybody knows where that is. Uh, Timothy is serving in Ephesus. So that's the larger circle um, that's, that's on there. And then the small circle is Troas. I couldn't find a map I liked that had Troas listed. But that's its approximate location, that small circle. Both Ephesus and Troas are in the western part of modern Turkey. So Paul is urging Timothy to come to him. It's a trip that would take about four to six months. He's asking him to retrieve these belongings. And in this, we are seeing a really unique picture of the Apostle Paul. We're seeing his humanity. Paul is is nearing the end of his earthly life. And and I should have said, keep the Bible open because we'll be looking through this passage. Uh, If you look at verse 8, he's talked about receiving this crown of righteousness that is not only for him, but all who have loved the appearing of Jesus. He is looking forward to the world to come. And yet, he's still living as a creature in this current world. And so he asks for a cloak because winter is coming. And he's thinking about shivering in this cold stone cell. He wants his books and his parchments. Now, we don't really know exactly what these are. I think we can make some educated guesses that for sure it's portions of the Old Testament, the Tanakh that he would have studied as a Jewish man. Um, It could be some early Christian writings, maybe fragments of of the sayings of Jesus or or other um, gospel collections. Maybe it's his own writing. Uh, Why does he want them? I'm going to encourage you that there's at least two reasons. Number one, he is sitting with the tedious hour after hour of being in a prison cell. There would be a benefit to... to have a little mental stimulation, engage with Scripture, give give him something to do with those long, tedious hours. Um, But it's more than that. He wants the encouragement and strength that comes from meditating on the promises of God. We'll see some next week that a lot of this passage is actually rooted in Psalm 22. It's coming out of the fruit of his years of study. He knows the truth of Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I'm helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Remember, this is the Paul who knows what it's like to rejoice and sing in prison and have an earthquake come. And the doors open up. He knows that there is real power in praising God, but he also knows that there is power just for his own heart to be lifted out of that cell. Um, Do you know that? Do you know the power of meditating on his promises to lift you out of the circumstances that you're in? There is power in this book. The Holy Spirit uses these truths in your heart to lift you out no matter what you are facing. How are you doing at applying his promises to your fears, to your frustrations, to your anxieties over what we see going on in the broader world and and in your own life? Um, 
he doesn't want us disengaged from the world. He wants us engaged and interceding and serving where we can and not overwhelmed because we are sustained by the truth of who he is and where we are headed. Further, uh, and we'll see in verse 16 next week, he's been deserted. Everybody deserted him at his first trial. He's been abandoned by people at his time of greatest need. And so he's saying to Timothy, would you come quickly? He wants to see Timothy before he dies. He knows, as we looked at last week, that his death is coming. It's fairly certain he's going to be executed by the Romans. But he's also trusting that the slow grind of the Roman judicial system will give Timothy time to arrive. Uh, If you know the end of Acts, he was awaiting trial for two years uh, at the end of Acts, at his first imprisonment. So he wants to see Timothy, and, and I just want you to realize this. He, his hope is in the world to come, and yet he's still longing for human companionship. And I just want to challenge you with this. We can never be so spiritual that we don't need fellowship. When we read the accounts of, of creation, particularly I think of, of Genesis 1, it's You know, God created and it was good and it was good and it was good. It gets to humanity. It was very good. And then you turn the page and in Genesis 2, he sees Adam hanging out all by himself. And God says, this is not good. So the first thing that he looks at in his created world says, there's a problem here. Now, obviously, the solution for Adam was Eve, um, but it's really not ultimately about marriage. Paul actually challenges in 1 Corinthians 7 that he would prefer people not to marry The point is we need community. We need fellowship with one another. Um, Humans were created for community with one another. It's part of what it means to be made in his image. So let me just put all these things together. We should not despise the tangible blessings that are being offered to us in the physical world. When you are cold, you need warm clothing. When you are bored, you need a good book, more than your TV. When you are down, you need friends. Don't don't allow the the, the supernatural grace that's given to you to minimize the very natural blessings. You are a human creature. You have very real human needs. God created you with those, and he's delighted to meet you in their provision. Realize this, Christians are are people who know that we are both physical and spiritual melded together. We're not trying to transcend it to get to some higher plane. That's actually Buddhism. That's not Christianity. Because I, I have to say this, I take issue a little bit with the last song we sang. It has the wrong ending. It's not whisk me away to some other realm. The ending is Jesus coming back to this place and making it right. Read the end of Revelation. That's the end of the Christian story. Um, Okay, so we see Paul's humanity. Sorry, I distracted myself. Stick to the notes, Dave. (laughs) Paul talks about his friends, okay? And so he's he's talking about uh, Crescens and and, uh, Titus and Tychicus. He's... 
They've been sent out on mission, he tells us. He's, he's a little bit like a general, marshalling his troops, sending them to different places. We really don't know a lot about Crescens. That's the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. It's a Latin name. Uh, Tychicus has appeared in a couple places. He appears to be a courier for Paul. So he sent, Paul sent his letter to the Ephesians with Tychicus and, and to the Colossians and to Titus, and it appears now that he's sending this final letter to Timothy through Tychicus, and then he's going to have him stay on. So he loves the church, even though this is a faithful companion, he's sending him out. He's not going to leave the church in Ephesus without a leader when he calls Timothy to come to him. Uh, Titus is listed. Titus is obviously a familiar person. If you look on your opposite page, there's a whole letter written to him. He was a Greek convert and, and companion of Paul. He had a fruitful ministry in Corinth. We can read about in, in 2 Corinthians, and he's now being sent to Dalmatia. In 2 Corinthians in particular, he has a history of providing encouragement and support to Paul. And yet, Paul in prison is sending him out. He's not keeping him for himself. He's focused on the extension of the kingdom. But I, I want to focus on Titus just for a moment here because he is an example in Galatians that Christians don't have to follow the Jewish law. In Galatians, Paul talks about the fact that, that Titus was a Greek and was uncircumcised and that it was a little bit scandalous for the leaders in Jerusalem that Paul had this guy with him. And, and you'll see where I'm going in a few moments here, but it's so important to realize that Christian freedom means freedom from religious duty to make myself righteous or acceptable to God. That's what Christian freedom is. That is not, rather. It is, it's, it's that um, I don't have to make myself acceptable to God through religious duty. And so I have this, this passage from Galatians 2. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The freedom in view, when we talk about Christian freedom, is slavery to religious duties and obligations, because you can't earn your way there. And so let me just say this again. If you're, if you're here this morning investigating the Christian faith, um, only Christianity is offering you grace. Only in Christianity does God come to you. Every other religion or worldview is established on a system of merit. You've got to earn your way. This is a reconstruction of an ancient ziggurat in Iraq, the ziggurat of Ur. And I, this came to mind as I was thinking about this because it really captures architecturally how we view things. I've got to ascend that really high stair. I've got to climb that huge stair to somehow meet him. And behaviorally and morally, we try to do the same thing as is happening here architecturally. How do I work my way up there? Christianity is the only faith where God comes down to meet us. 
where Jesus became human and experienced our frailties, conquered all the struggles that we face, and ultimately, as we were singing about, atoned for our sin on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we were singing about earlier. The Christian faith is the only one that has a God who took on flesh for the express purpose of bringing about reconciliation between us and him and then ultimately for us with one another. Paul mentions uh, that only Luke is with him. This is, he's referred to in Colossians as the beloved physician. Um, He has a long history of faithful service. In Colossians, that was Paul's first imprisonment. He was at his side. Uh, He has stuck with him. He's the writer not only of the gospel that bears his name, but also the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, which describes the the beginning of the church, much of it is written in first-person plural because Luke is saying, hey, I was there. We traveled here. We went there. Um, He has been faithful to Paul, and he is faithful with him still. In contrast to Demas, who we'll look at in a moment, because Luke and Demas are mentioned together in Colossians. So I want to ask you, how are we doing, Springton Lake, with sticking with one another? It's easy to stick by someone in the middle of a short crisis. It's harder to stick by people for the long haul. You know, that person has the newborn, and you get meals, and you bring them over, and maybe if it's multiples, as has happened in this church, some people come over and they help with late-night feedings and things like that. Um, We can help in the short term. But what about walking for years with those parents who have a wayward adult child? Or walking with that person who's been dealing with chronic depression for years? or some kind of chronic physical ailment. How are we doing at sticking with one another? And it could just be remaining friends over the long haul, kind of like Bono said. It's, it's, re- it's like resisting gravity at times to not just get pulled apart. Uh, how are we doing at remaining friends despite hurts and disagreements? Are we speaking truth to each other and bearing with each other in our failures? This week, uh, I had a friend call me from from Springton Lake who challenged me on something that I had done that was unhelpful. It was really important for me to hear that. One of the concerns I have is that people often don't speak truth to leadership. Not realizing that, you know what, we're all in process here. If we stay together for any length of time, we fail each other, we sin against each other, and we need to be willing to speak into each other's lives. Uh, One last thought on this. The church is unique because it's people who would otherwise have nothing to do with with one another being brought together in the same community because of the person of Jesus. 
And it's really important that in that context, we resist the desire to just do same and same, whether that's same socioeconomic status, same racial status, same station in life status even, um, that we would experience what Jesus intended in bringing such a diverse group of people together. Because often, um, the group that is all the same struggles with the same kind of things. You can't necessarily speak truth into each other's lives because you're blind to it on some level. So we need one another. We need to stick together. Okay, let's, let's move on and look at some of the enemies, the two enemies listed in this passage. Number one, Paul mentions Demas and the danger of worldly love. As I said a moment ago, Demas was mentioned with Luke in Colossians and in Philemon during Paul's first imprisonment. But it seems that right now, this current predicament is too much for him. And you need to realize this. Demas is not necessarily, necessarily a heretic. We talked a number of weeks ago about People who were heretical, who were teaching the wrong things. But Demas isn't getting called out for that. It seems like he has just refused to carry the cross of continuing association with Paul and the risks that that could make to himself. And in contrast to what um, we looked at a moment ago in in verse 8, where we're supposed to love the appearing of Jesus, it tells us in verse 10, Demas is in love with this present world. He's not looking forward to the world to come. He wants to party like it's 1999. (laughs) How are we guilty like that in the American church? I think this is one of the biggest dangers we face in our culture. Demas was living for now. It's very easy for us to live for now. He came to disgrace by just traveling that well-worn path of comfort and self-interest. Let me just challenge you with this. There is no greater threat to our faith than the combination of prosperity and aging. Because the years just begin to grind down your ideals. And you become satisfied with less and less. We can lower our standards. There's no greater threat than aging The older we get, the more we long for comfort. I don't sleep on the ground anymore when I go camping. Some of you refuse to camp anymore, period. So let me me commend a book to you. It's called Screwtape Letters. Many of you have heard of it from from C.S. Lewis. Let me set it up for you so you understand what I'm going to read. It is letters from a higher demon to a lower demon, instructing this lower demon how to lead a man astray. So everything's the opposite of what it should be, okay? That's really important to know. Um, I would commend this book to you. I pick it up every two years or so. It's a very quick read. Um, It would be good for your soul. But I was actually, I was listening to the audio book, 
um, last week, and this passage just works so well, this section. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt his pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations which, with, with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth, which is just what we want. The enemy wants us content in this world, not living for the world to come. So this is why I took the little excursion on Titus earlier and what Christian freedom is about. Because it's about earning my own righteousness before God, being freed from that, rather than being freed to live however I want. In fact, the key passage on Christian freedom in the New Testament is this other passage in Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be extremely wary of any view of freedom that is saying my life is really my own, to live however I please particularly if you want to put the tagline in, because I'm under grace. That's why I appreciate that we sang, um, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Do you feel it? I realize no one is going to say how I can, I can live however I please, but I want to ask you, do the choices you make reflect that state of the heart. So how can we assess whether love of this present world is a problem? Do the blessings in your life lead to deeper gratitude to God? As prosperity increases for you, is your praise and worship of Him growing in proportion? You're becoming more and more overfilled with joy and praise? Is your fruitfulness for his kingdom increasing or decreasing? Remember the parable of the soils, the seed that fell among the thorns. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, 
But as they go on their way, as they're going through life, as the years roll by, one after the next, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This is important because perseverance is a critical component to the Christian life. The greatest danger we face in our culture is not from persecution, it's from pleasure. The danger is not that you or I is going to be imprisoned. It's that our faith will become impotent because we are worshiping the same idols as our neighbors. That's the danger. So, are you closer to Jesus now than you were decades ago? Listen, this is why we need real friends in our lives to challenge us to speak truth, to help us see the things we can't see. Now, let me just say very quickly, especially if you're here investigating the Christian faith, um, you might be thinking, okay, I knew we were going to get around to this eventually. Um, Squash all the joy out of life. No. God is not a killjoy. It's not that he doesn't want you to enjoy life. That's why we started off where we did, looking at Paul's humanity, looking at his desire for some of these creature comforts, including warm clothing and meaningful friendship and study and work. He wants you to have all those things. He wants them in the right place, which is on their knees before him. So I, I want to look at this, pa- this passage in James because it really captures it. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that that he has made to dwell in us? Okay. He's not holding out on you. Do you see the language he's using? Don't be adulterous. Don't you know I'm jealous for you? He is using the language of a lover. I want to satisfy you in every way. It's because my heart for you is so big and I want to satisfy all your desires that I get so concerned that you're running after all these other things that are not going to satisfy you. And we could say a lot more on this. I think we're going to get to this maybe late winter, early spring. I want to do a series on on Christian identity Um, But here's, here's the reality just quickly for today. If you make your identity a romantic relationship and you're single, you're devastated. If you're married and your spouse is having a bad day and it's coming sideways at you, you're devastated. If you make your children your identity, you're doing great as long as they're being successful. As soon as their life hits the rocks, you're devastated. If work is what you're living for, It's great as long as you're making promotions. What happens when you get laid off? What happens when that project doesn't come together? If you put your identity in anything else, it is going to fail you. It's not that God wants to take from you. He wants to pour out blessing on you. And that's why James uses this language of love. Okay, Alexander, very quickly. Um, Alexander 
was a very common name in the first century, okay? And ever since Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC, everybody loved to use that name. So we really don't know who this guy is. We can't necessarily connect him to another um, mention of an Alexander in the New Testament. But I think it's important that, that you, you realize something that, that where it says, uh, the Alexander the coppersmith, verse 14, did me great harm. The ESV is rendering that word did um, the Greek word can be used as a legal term meaning inform against. So a way to render verse 14 could be Alexander the coppersmith informed many evil things against me. So a number of scholars believe that what happened is this dude Alexander was in Troas, that's where Paul had been, informed the authorities against Paul and had him arrested. And now, as we saw last week, awaiting execution. And this does work out well if you think about Timothy's going through there. He's going to be going to Troas, so you better watch out for this dude. And it also makes sense of, hey, why did he leave this stuff with Carpus? These are obviously important personal effects. Why did he leave them there? Well, because he was arrested and, and taken into custody. Um, and so Timothy is going to pick up these things. Either way, um, no matter how you look at Alexander, he has sinned profoundly against Paul. And the most important thing I want you to see here is how he concludes verse 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul is living out what he, he's practicing what he preached to the Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This guy is likely the cause of Paul's arrest and his impending execution. But he's not going to seek to exact justice on him. Like Jesus before him, as it says in 1 Peter here, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued and trusted himself to the one who judges justly. Are you bearing grudges? Are there people you would like to exact vengeance upon? With whom you are rehearsing hurts and slights that have happened to you. Do you have fantasy conversations? Maybe an hour later, if only I had said this. If you have people that are occupying space in your head like that, Jesus really wants to set you free. He really wants you to be able to entrust them to him who judges justly and not be be uh, consumed with those kinds of thoughts. Um, and that brings us to our last point here. Our passage gives us a beautiful picture of, of healed relationships and the hope of reconciliation. You have to know a little bit of background to get what I'm talking about. Verse 11 is incredibly significant. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. He's talking about a guy who was the cousin of Barnabas. He had been involved in the Jerusalem church. He was a significant character. Uh, when Peter was miraculously sprung from prison in Acts 12, he went to Mark's mother's house. So significant family. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and then he left them abruptly. And Luke records that Mark departed, but he doesn't give any commentary in Acts 
Paul clearly saw it as a dereliction of duty. So that when Paul and Barnabas are ready to go on their second journey, they have this colossal falling out over John Mark. So it says in Acts, you, you, you have that passage up on the screen. I'm not going to read through it for the sake of time here, but it says there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Um, the, the English word, the, the Greek word, the, um, is the root for our English paroxysm. It's a sharp disagreement. It's this fit of anger. It's the apostles yelling at each other and being so angry, they storm off in opposite directions, and the New Testament doesn't record whether Paul and Barnabas were ever together again. Significant. But change has happened. So already in Colossians, you see a little bit of softening of Paul toward Mark. Uh, I won't go there for the sake of time. But he was a companion then to Paul in his imprisonment, and now he's telling Timothy, I want to see you most of all, that's why I'm writing to you, but make sure you grab this guy on your way. He's useful to me. Mark is so helpful that Paul wants him at his side in his final days on earth. It's a pretty astounding turn of events. So what can we deduce from this? Mark has grown and matured. He's now useful in ministry. He's not going to bail. Um, his ministry is an asset, not a liability. And I want, you, I want this to encourage you, because I'm sure you are looking at places in your life saying, will I ever grow? Think of screw tape. They get so discouraged because we keep beating them in these areas. He's saying, that this passage is pointing us to the hope that growth happens, that maturity happens, that Jesus does keep his promise of fulfilling the work that he's begun. And I think it also points to a change of heart in Paul. Paul, since that first missionary journey, has done a fair bit of writing and meditating on the reconciling power of God. He knows that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel and that our renewed relationship with him needs to be fleshed out in relationship with one another here. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in just our last moment here, um, I want you to think about a fractured relationship. You might be so tangled up with this that you really need to sit down before the Lord and write out what are these offenses, what are these things I'm struggling with, and ask God for grace to even consider the supernatural work of forgiveness that might need to happen here. Um, it's very likely, if this is a long-term relationship and one you've been tangled up with for a while, that you're going to need someone else to help you. You're going to need to find that, that wiser brother or sister to sit down with and talk through what has gone on here and have them help you parse out where do I need to own things? What do I need to confront and challenge? Um, because that is likely 
part of what's going to have to happen. There's going to be things you're going to need to own, but there also may be things you just need to confront because you have been sinned against. And it's actually not loving someone to let them just get away with stuff. It's loving to confront and call out sinful behaviors. Uh, And that can take a lot of courage, especially within family dynamics, if you are going against the grain of your family culture. Here's the reality. Wherever you are in a broken relationship, um, Scripture shows us that reconciliation can happen because the blood of Jesus has already solved the biggest possible estrangement that could exist. And because we have been reconciled to him, he wants to empower you by his spirit so that you can be reconciled in whatever broken relationship you're encountering as much as it's up to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us. Lord, we want to be doers of your word and not just hearers. And so would you help us to see uh, ways we need to put feet on some of these principles in our own lives, in our own relationships. We thank you, God, for... Um, the reconciliation that we have with you and the fact that you've given us your spirit to enable us to do things we can't do on our own. Would you give us courage and strength, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.